but joined the Milken Institute is we created the Inclusive Capitalism Program initially to tackle two pillars. The first is the sourcing of more quality, diverse talent into the asset management industry. And the second is the allocation and governance of diverse founders. Because a lot of times when you go to the big, particularly the big public pension plans, they'll say, well, you know, it's a real challenge to, to get the money to diverse founders. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, our guest is Senior Director of the Center for Financial Markets at the Milken Institute, Blair C. Smith. Whether he's co-managing a multi-billion dollar public retirement portfolio, overseeing relationships at wealth management teams for top tier banks, or leading impact investment initiatives, Blair has made his mark over the course of his 20 plus year career. He joins me now to discuss his work in DE&I, how he helps diverse led asset management firms achieve their goals and much more. Welcome, Blair. Hope you're doing well on this day. As you've gone throughout your career, you've done so many different things. And now in the seat that you are, you're really affecting change. And I think it's really a quintessential moment in time right now where the world is really focused on this notion of, of, of diversity. And you're recently written up in Forbes with regards to, you know, a guide for asset owners to increase racial, ethnic, and gender diversity in their investment portfolio. That's a lot, but you whittle it down. You call it the path to inclusive capitalism. We could spend the whole episode doing a deep dive into that document. But for our listeners, you know, could you just give an overview of the key pillars? I think there's four of them that guide that outline. Well, first of all, Dahani, thank you for the opportunity to join you today. Excited to be here. Excited to talk about this work that the Milken Institute is doing because it particularly targets diverse-led asset management firms and peels back the bottlenecks and blind spots that have existed for decades mm. in trying to help them get access to capital the same way that their mainstream counterparts do. There are a lot of examples out there in the asset management industry of success. You know, you have Robert Smith and uh, Jose Feliciano of Clear Lake, but that's two. If people start to struggle after you get past the Frank Bakers of the world as to who else you can identify as successful. And so what I've been able to do since I joined the Milken Institute is we created the Inclusive Capitalism Program initially to tackle two pillars. The first is the sourcing of more quality, diverse talent into the asset management industry. And the second is the allocation and governance of diverse founders. Because a lot of times when you go to the big, particularly the big public pension plans, they'll say, well, you know, it's a real challenge to, to get the money to diverse founders. There's a long list of excuses that we list in the in the white paper, the path to inclusive capitalism, but we also have 17 strategies and how those folks who are the check writers, the allocators, 
what they can do to properly invest in diverse-led firms and, and mitigate a lot of those excuses that have been around for a long time. And when people say, why are you focusing on diverse-led firms? Like, why aren't you focusing on another target? The answer to that is that the asset management industry is an $87 trillion industry on any given day. The worst day of the market, the asset management industry is probably about $87 trillion. And only 1.6% of that industry is represented by people who look and sound like you and me. Now, that's astonishing when you think about the amount of diverse talent that comes out of financial services. You know, all the folks who go off and they go to law school, they get their MBA, they're managing directors at firms, if they can get there. And that's another piece of the puzzle that we're working on is the sustainability of diverse individuals, black and brown folks being able to stay in the asset management industry to the point where they can get to the managing director level and to the mm -hmm. partner level and to the board level. So we're fighting a battle on multiple fronts. You know, I encourage folks to go to milkeninstitute.org, check out the white paper. We've expanded the two pillars to four pillars. So no spoilers, I'll let you go check that out. And then <laughs> also the recent series of articles in Forbes magazine that covers individually each of the pillars. I want to give a shout out to my co-author of both the white paper and the, the uh, writer of the uh, Forbes series, Bhakti Merchandani. Bhakti leads an organization called IADEI. Their focus is um, exclusively on providing more access to diverse founders. And she was an integral part of the success of the white paper and getting those Forbes articles published. So. How did you find yourself sort of moving in this direction? And for me, I came from the, the football world of which is completely saturated by culture. It's driven mm -hmm. by culture. It is mm -hmm. culture. And then as I make my own personal transition into the world of investing, you know, I noticed the stark difference between the two. But was there a moment in, in time as you've kind of progressed through your career where you decided to kind of pick up that piece of paper and write things down because it became so apparent to you? Or was it just sort of a natural transition from something else? I entered the industry, let's see, I graduated from, from business school 2000, worked in banking for about 15 years. And, and my start was as, as what they call a private banker, somebody who helps out ultra high net worth individuals. A lot of the folks that were my clients were athletes and entertainers. And back then you could see the difference in the way that services were presented to some clients versus others. Mm. I had difficult conversations as a junior banker trying to convince senior bankers that folks in the entertainment space and in the sports world that they were deserving of the same level of service and that opportunities to help them manage, maintain, and sustain their wealth should be presented equally. And there was a, a lot of frustration in those days. Like a lot of folks on Wall Street, you know, they moved from, from the traditional retail side to the asset management side of the business. 
I was very lucky. I got a call from a friend and was given the opportunity to work with the New York State Common Retirement Fund, which had a $5 billion portfolio exclusively to focus on women-led and diverse-led firms. And then I became involved in the challenges of investing in diverse firms for, on behalf of a public pension plan. Mm -hmm. And there's a real nuance is when you talk to like a family office or a foundation, it's particularly family office, it's like their money, right? So it's their culture, they're the decision maker, they can write you a check just like that, right? If they want to. With a public pension plan, that's grandma and grandpa's money. And on my first day, the first thing that my mentor said to me, he said, remember that this is grandma and grandpa's money. This is not like some fund. It's like, oh, well, you know, the investment didn't work out. So, you know, oh, well, you know, we'll just go out and get now. It's like it doesn't it doesn't work that way here. So there's a higher degree of sensitivity in managing grandma and grandpa's money now. If you think about grandma and grandpa have a, a son or a grandson that goes into the asset management industry mm. and they are not given the opportunity to come work at the asset management firm that helps to manage their money, there's something wrong with that. If they're not given the opportunity to start their own asset management firm where you know they're well-trained and they've got the education, they've got the experience, and yet they're still not given the opportunity to manage grandma and grandpa's money, there's something wrong with that too. And it's, it's a conversation that's not your typical kitchen table discussion or you know discussion sitting around backyard barbecue and talking about, but it, it, it matters. It disproportionately affects all of us in this country, particularly the folks who look and sound like us. As you know somebody, a lot of folks in family had pension money. And if you look at the way that the markets have been behaving, you hope that they're very smart people. But if none of those smart people look and sound like you, don't have any of the cultural sensitivities to understand what some of your challenges might be, or, or even if, if they're just like, well, you know, if the market goes down and grandma and grandpa's money, their pension plan is underfunded, you know, you hope that that's not the case. But I feel better knowing that the industry is evolving and that there are more young, smart folks who are looking to get into the space and help us protect our investments. I mean, that's a lot of money for anybody or any manager or anybody that had that type of responsibility. I mean, I'd have to imagine as you're talking to your mentor and as you're building your reputation and at the same time building your own reps if you will, through the industry, that you feel an immense amount of pressure. How do you adjust to that? And with some of these questions that you're asking of others, how have you answered them personally, right? And how do you ultimately take responsibility for that? There's a personal sense of responsibility because, again, you're in a space where you're trying to help the folks that look and sound like you. And, and you know, there's a, a feeling that, you know, if this were my brother-in-law, who was a New York State police officer, and in his pension money, I knew that his pension money was not being managed properly. Like, how am I gonna go home to Thanksgiving and sit across mm -hmm. the table from him knowing that his retirement may be jeopardized in some way? 
the best way for me in the beginning of my career was really not to think about, was to focus on the job. It was to focus on, okay, how do I make the best investment decisions? Who are the folks that I can look at, you know, if you're talking about a Robert Smith or a Damian Dwin or, or a Frank Baker, and having conviction around those folks and being able to go into that investment committee and fight for those individuals, knowing that, you know, they're ultimately that their performance, that they're going to outperform their mainstream counterparts in market cycle. But I didn't let it really overwhelm me. I probably didn't take the time to even think about it until year two in the in the seat. Your perspective from the private markets to the public sector, did that at all kind of change your way moving forward? You know, you're talking to, to people that are high net worth individuals, and at the same time, then, therefore, you have grandma and grandpa's money. For those that think about bridging those two worlds together, or, you know, how, how you think about it, where does your mindset go? Or is it, like you're saying, it's just really about doing the job? It's about doing the job, always being a student of the markets, and learning from and being around as many smart people in the space as you can immerse yourself. I was very fortunate. The folks who trained me in New York Common, State Common Retirement Fund, some mm. of the, the best in the business. They knew the business, had been around for years. So I was blessed to have great training from those folks. My personal perspective along with the role of being a fiduciary. And I think that's probably where the, the most pressure comes from because, you know, getting a lot of trouble, you make the wrong decision. And I knew people who got into trouble making the wrong mm -hmm. decision. But again, you focus on the rules of the game and you don't become too sentimental. And I think that mm -hmm. that's where I was told never to invest based on sentiment. And I've had to tell friends, you know what, I'm sorry, but we're not going to be able to, to allocate to your fund. That's a, that's a hard conversation, mm -hmm. you know. But again, you got to think about grandma and grandpa's money mm -hmm. and where that's going to go. So, you know, we started off the top of the show just talking about the Milken Institute and, you know, access to capital through strategic innovations and financing and that's how we we connected because you gave me an opportunity yeah. to, to sit on the stage and, and talk to some great investors. And I think it's all around this notion of not only culture, DE&I, but enhancing economic and social impact. So as you think about your history, right, with regards mm -hmm. to the public sector and the private sector, how does that play into your work with, with Milken? And what are some of the most effective ways to enhance social impact through these types of initiatives? I bring the convergence of all my experiences from the past to Milken. As somebody that focuses on policy now and reporting, I'm not investing anymore. I know a lot of investors. I know a lot of people who are looking for investment opportunities. And, and I kind of position myself as, um, as a resource to those entrepreneurs who are seeking capital and to be able to give them guidance and point them in the right direction. You can't give investment advice. I'm not licensed anymore. And the Milken Institute, we are a nonprofit, bipartisan 
think tank. So we don't we don't cut checks either. I have to tell folks that too. <laughs> Give me some money, man. It's like, well, I don't have anybody. And but you know somebody that has some money. I do know somebody who does, right. I'm <laughs> I'm not in Mike Milken's trust. That's what the, the joke with billionaires is like if you if you're not in the trust, then you know, don't run around talking about how you could uh hook somebody up with a check, whether you family or not. <laughs> somebody's cousin, but if you're not in the trust, don't uh don't overpromise and underdeliver. But being able to be in the conversation and being able to be at the table and being able to have the the discussions and know the people that are around in order to be able to place that capital is a very strong position and relationship to be in. And people ask me all the time, why do you want to get into this? Why do you want to get into this industry? It's it's so hard to kind of convert not only the checks into successful businesses, but to also change people's true true mindset. And, you know, as you work in DE&I, you know, what do you feel as though are, are the biggest challenges to achieving true diversity and equity and inclusion in the world of investing? Or really, how do you think about true diversity, equity, and inclusion? Because I think those could also be two different thinkings. The greatest challenge that exists today is getting past the D to the E and the I. Mm. I think that we've done a great job in the post-George Floyd tragedy of highlighting and uplifting diversity. But I think we're good, even though it's all there's always folks will try to chip away at it. We're good on like the culture stuff. Like we're good on more holidays. And, you know, when I talk to folks who are looking for capital, they're looking for folks to invest in their business. They're looking to launch a business or a firm or a fund, and like what I need is equity. Mm-hmm. I'm well-trained, I'm smart enough, I've got the track record to be successful. I just need equity. I appreciate the diversity. Nobody wants that to go away. Mm-hmm. But right now, what we need to do is solidly land on the E and the I. And the, the I is being, to your point, the, the, whether it's the Milken Institute or other events, somebody bringing you to that table and providing you with that exposure so that people see you, know who you are, and develop a mindset around, is this someone that I want to um, invest in? Is there a story or is there a moment where you can kind of describe how you were able to convert someone from that diversity to that equity? Because I think, you know, well, people always saying, like, I want to get this done, but how do I do it, Blair? I mean, you're, well, I got I mean, a lot you're, of you're stories. The, uh, you're, you're the king of strategy. <laughs> you know, you sit, you sit at the table, right? You may not be a part of the trust, but you're involved in a lot of people's trust, and you have that trust. So how did you, maybe the question is, how did you gain that trust? And what was the mechanism or what was the storytelling by which you used to get people across that threshold? I'll tell a story that's post my New York State Common experience. I was asked by a foundation for a New York medical center. So they had about $100 million in assets under management, and it was managed by a board. And they had the idea that they wanted to hire a diverse manager. Now, whether that was a group of diverse individuals that worked at a big 
institution like a Morgan mm-hmm. Stanley or Goldman Sachs or you know someone that was w- what they call an emerging manager, which is a wholly owned, diverse-led firm. They had the idea that it was time. So they'd made that, some members of the board, the majority of the board had made that decision on their own. Like, let's try at least to find that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I helped them in their search. And then it was, the, we had a group of folks that put out an you know, RFP. They had me conduct the search. So I went out and I found a couple of institutions and a couple of diverse-led firms. And it was very clear from the beginning that this one diverse-led asset manager was small, but they could give these folks exactly what they needed. They had done all the background research mm-hmm. on their performance. They they knew them better than they knew themselves. And so for me, when I saw them all present, I was like, well, this is a no-brainer. They're going to pick these guys. And there was a lot of hesitation. And I was astonished. And this is when I, you know, all my New York common experience came to bear because all of the same excuses, mm. you know, one board member said, well, are we in the business of preserving and protecting our foundation? Are we in the business of putting people in the business. Mm. And I said, well, if this was not a young group of black founders, I'm just going to say it like that, you wouldn't ask that question. You probably wouldn't. You'd say, wow, these guys are really young and smart and sharp, and let's go ahead and give them a shot. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be hitting them with the type of incredulity and skepticism. And so it was time for me to make my recommendation. And the uh, one older black member of the board, Mm. he comes up to me, like just before I'm supposed to speak, and he's like, look, you need to do this. Everybody in this room knows that, you know, these young folks are the best investment manager that you could, that they could hire. But you're going to have to make the case. You're going to have to do this. And that's, you know, I talk about pressure. Like, that's when the pressure kicked in because, you know, this this older senior black gentleman, then he sat down with the rest of his board members and he looked at me and I'm standing at the end of the conference room table and he's just like, you need to make this happen. Like, they need this for themselves and that we know that this fund manager needs it. So I don't remember what I said. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, a lot of you blood went, rushing. You went on autopilot. I had a lot of blood rushing through my head, like like in The Godfather, while I was making the the speech. But you know, I did it. I said, "Look at this presentation, and and look at these folks' presentation, and then the the, the sprinkles on the ice cream." I said, "And they'll save you money." Hmm. And I sat back like that, and just let that. And it land on everybody. And they they made the right decision. They picked a great investment advisor to this day that still services them. And, you know, periodically I'll get updates. And they saved them millions of dollars in fees from other managers that they could have potentially hired and and turned the portfolio around. Like their portfolio was counter to the to the current market cycle. Like they were instead of when people were making money, they were losing money. Mm. 
Yeah. But and and with that, and th these folks came and presented and told them that there was still like this hesitation, like, oh, I don't know, they're not, they don't look like the folks that we're used to seeing up here. So, and that was the proof of concept that that reminded me that when you give young smart folks a chance, that they they can exceed expectations. Mm. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to the structural efficiencies that need to be created, but it ultimately just takes time. You yes. need the managers, you need the trust, and you need the trusts. Uh, you you need the willing participants. You need to be able to work in conjunction with one another. And oftentimes, it hasn't been at that moment when things start to meld. And what I appreciate about how you sit in, in this role is that you're able to bridge that that gap based upon your own experience. Um, and I know that, you know, as you're a CEO of Promethean AB Strategies, LLC, I'm sure that strategic consultancy helped, right? And, and that time spent, um, you know, contributed to the notion of having that need. Um, so I hope one day you're sitting in my corner, sitting down helping <laughs> me in, in my discussion. One of the things that we talk about also on this show is about deal making. And I just want to transition to that because while you can get that, you know, you can get the equity, you still got to close it. And so what was the first deal you brokered? And what did you learn from that experience? Because I can only imagine in my head, you're talking about the historical references that you have to pull upon as you sit in these different rooms. There was a deal or two that you did that added to the way that you went on autopilot in order to make sure that that medical group contributed that that capital. There's a reason why Blair C. Smith does what he does. Yeah, there there have been a couple, and you know, part of it there is an, an auto autopilot piece to it because you know you get into a zone. It's just like professional sports. You get into a zone. You're like, all right, it's time to do this. It's time to make this happen. There are days. I think about you and your peers, Donnie. I was like, you know, I, sometimes I wish I had a ring or I had, you know, been in a championship, you know, because it helps you. That experience helps you get your mind right. It's a reason why a lot of people are drawn to athletes and, and entertainers and try to pull them into this deal making space is because you understand pressure mm. and you understand stakes and you understand audience and who's looking at you and you push through that in order to to be successful. I was thinking about one particular deal where, and, and I guess this is, this is a story about confidence. So I was working on uh, uh, providing some debt financing to a young sister who's an entrepreneur. And this was more of a lesson to me. And she, she'd had a lot of exposure to sports and entertainment. And so it's like, okay, we're well, coming in and basically coming in to borrow money, right? So I was like, you know, my old school training, being born in the 70s, I'm like, all right, now, you know, make sure you, you kind of dress down and kind of humble yourself and, you know, you exude confidence, but, you know, just make sure that you, you know, stay focused on the numbers. And this sister did exactly the opposite. Hmm. <laughs> She came in, rocking a fur coat, and went to the end of the table, and is just like, this is why you guys are going to lend me this money. 
And then she just, she cuts loose and she knew her stuff, but she exuded so much confidence that the decision-making group, they were just like, oh, we got to give her this money. Mm-hmm. And it was counterintuitive to the, the idea of coming in, you know, with humility. And so, so I think what I learned from that experience is that there's, there's more than one way to pitch. And, and you have to pitch based on your experience and your style. She came in just completely unafraid. And, and I, I just couldn't help but, I'm like Eddie Murphy and Boomerang. I'm standing up clapping. I'm like, strong jet. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you go, girl, you do it. Yeah, and I've talked to folks, particularly when you're, depending on who your audience is, the family office and foundation crowd, they're like, no, we like Khan. We want somebody to come in there and show their stuff and talk about how great they've been and, and how they can continue to, to be great, you know, versus other, other allocators, other, other check writers, they, they want it presented to them a little different. So I think the other takeaway is know your audience. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most critical pieces because I think just in the way that she could be successful and it was a success, it could have also gone awfully wrong as well. And you have to understand different rooms are, are programmed in a different way, but that diversity element as it starts to change people's mind, as people start to see the qualities uh, and communities of, of different people that are behaving maybe not akin to what they're used to, there's a I think a sense of open mindedness that starts to starts to become. So do you think and maybe this is just an easy question. No. I'll the take approach, easy right? <laughs> the approach to deal making, right? The approach mm-hmm. to the art of deal making. How do you think it's evolved? Over your tenure, I think that's like a perfect example. Yeah. But how has the art of deal-making evolved? I think that the people in the room all the way around are smarter. Hmm. I think that the your generation, the younger you get with folks who are entering into the space, I'm always just astonished at how knowledgeable they are. When you think back to the days when you had every major city in the U.S. had a black mayor. Like you had Harold Washington and you had David Dinkins in New York. And I mean, there was Mm -hmm. one time within a decade that every major U.S. city had a black mayor, like Tom Bradley, Maynard Jackson. And at the time, there was a lot of political context. There was a really strong political effort to get entrepreneurs, particularly black entrepreneurs, capital. Mm. And, and now you see that effort coming from the private sector. And I think that it's a strange thing to say. It's, it's easier and harder at the same time. I think it's easier because of the access to information. You've got kids in their teens, preteens, going on YouTube doing research about how to, you know, start their own businesses. I mean, you, you've got young ladies out there who are lip gloss millionaires. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't tell my generation 30 years ago that a young black girl could go on to the internet and get a million followers and 
and have a revenue model based on it. Now, you know, we look, you can pick that apart and say, oh, well, you know, that doesn't happen with everybody. And But it's, it's a sign that there's a confidence mm-hmm. and, you know, around entrepreneurship and, and deal making that people come to the table. Like I said, with like with this young lady that I was cited before as an example, with a degree of confidence that I don't know that I'd seen in the earlier stages of my career. And there's an almost an attitude like, listen, I got something that you need. If you don't want it, mm. I'll find somebody else. And I can I can actually think of a couple of instances where institutions passed on the opportunity to invest in diverse-led funds and went next door to institution B and ended up being wildly successful. People do have a fear of missing out. And I think that that's the other piece of it, Donnie. Someone like you or, or your peers, they come and present, it's like, am I going to miss out if I let this guy walk out the room and I haven't seriously considered this deal? Like, there's a lot of that now across the deal-making ecosystem. The FOMO is real. FOMO is very real. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. I don't, even, I don't even know how all of a sudden that word became so popular in the world. But people say it to you all the time, you know, oh, you FOMO because you, you didn't get to go on this vacation. FOMO yeah. because you didn't get, get to go see this person. FOMO because of the fact that you didn't get to invest in this, in this business. Yeah, I was going to say, think of the private equity firms that could have invested in Fenty. Right. Mm-hmm. And passed on it. Think of the ones who, who could have invested in the Cardassians 15 years ago. The Cardassians have been on TV for 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, the revenue model that spun out of that, the Internet stuff that, you know, that's yeah, Kim Kardashian lecturing to people at Harvard Business School. I mean, that's that, that, that's real deal making. You can't be dismissive of it anymore. I know I'm going to get some people going to come on Twitter. They're like, why are you talking about Kardashians and and deal making, but you know you can't be dismissive of opportunities anymore. How do you think globalization played into that as well? Right, I think oh, yeah. globalization through the internet, social media, gave people new access to new people. How, how much do you think that's in my opinion? How else do you think that it impacted the overall deal making outcome and mindset? Well, I mean, again, globalization's played an enormous factor. And technology is the catalyst for globalization. Think about back in the day where you had to make like a long distance phone call to talk to somebody in Jamaica or in England. And, you know, you're not seeing them on screen. You know, you're in a conference room with a stattery phone line like it at 11 o'clock at night trying to transact a, a, a deal. Now, with the technology that we have, you know, you have real-time interaction mm-hmm. with folks anywhere in the globe. There's no lag time anymore. There's no inertia in, in communication. It's just like, you want to talk to somebody over in London? All right, let's get them on the phone right now. Mm-hmm. Or let's get them on FaceTime right now. Mm-hmm. As we kind of wind down, I wanted to kind of get two questions that really point to what I believe might be part of the foundation of who you are. I think back personally to the coaches that affected me in high school just as much as the coach that affected me in college at the University of Michigan and the undergirding that they 
provided through their advice and counsel and how much that meant to me. So you were ROTC scholar in college. What lessons did you learn for your time in the ROTC program uh, that you couldn't have learned anywhere else? It gave me a discipline as a college student that prior to that semester, I did not have. So I seldom tell the story. My, my mom came to me at the end of sophomore year, and she's just like, you've got to find a way to help pay for college, uh, or you may not be going back next semester. And the fastest scholarship that I could get was ROTC scholarship. And I had an interest in, I was a journalism major, you know, in the Army, they have the Signal Corps branch, which focused on communication. So I was like, I did the ROTC scholarship summer. I did things I'd never done, you know, I qualified firing weapons. I dropped off of a 75 foot rope bridge. I led a team of folks to carry like these 25, 30 pound ropes across a raging river actually won the badge for, for river crossing. Mm. And so developing that confidence at that age that I did not have before, you know, I could still remember it was hard for my dad to get me out of bed on Saturday morning to go mow the lawn. Here I am, <laughs> you know, wading through a raging river wow. with a 25, 30 pound rope hanging around my neck, you know, the very next season. So it was, so that really did jumpstart my confidence around what I could do. And I was in ROTC as a scholar and pledged my fraternity the same semester, which I would not <laughs> recommend if my son came to me and said that this is what he's gonna do. I was like, what are you, are you crazy? Like, <laughs> you know, I was like, I think about it. I was like, that was kind of, because I'm, I'm basically doing double PT. I'm doing mm -hmm. PT with my fraternity brothers and I'm doing PT for ROTC. I was fit, you know, I could run a six minute mile, you know, when I was 19, but learned a lesson about overreaching too, so. <laughs> No, but it's a it's a great example of the capacity of someone that's motivated to do something that they truly believe they need. And it's also a testament to your belief in yourself as a result of, of the outcome. And it's interesting, yeah. No one could get you out of bed, but you're carrying the rope across <laughs> the raging river. That was a choice that you made for yourself. And I think each and every one of us has to get to that point where we have that ultimate, and you pointed out several times throughout our discussion, that, that confidence, whether it was the gentleman that was presenting to the potential to get the access to the pension capital, or the young lady that was looking for the debt, building that confidence comes in different ways. There's another way from your teacher, right? And ROTC being one of them, but then you're also at Columbia uh, Graduate School of Business, where you got your MBA. They say that teachers learn from their students. What have you learned from yours? Well, I'm actually teaching this semester. So I'm, I'm lecturing the impact investing in real estate course at the business school for the next six weeks. I learn from them every minute of every hour that mm -hmm. I'm in the class because young folks, they're innovative. We had a debate in class recently about hybrid work versus being in the office. Mm -hmm five days a week. And the challenge for the students is that some of them were debating on the side that they did not agree with. 
So I said, you know, in life, sometimes you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to defend and not be, you know, like 200% passionate about it, but this is what you have to defend. So the rebuttals and the dialogue between them, as they continue to develop and get training in, in that environment, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be badasses. They're, they're really, as far as leadership, like they're going to be very, very smart, very intuitive leaders. And mm -hmm. what they teach me is that I need to keep learning and I need mm. to keep being as much of a student as they are in order to keep up with them. Mm -hmm. And I think all leaders, leaders in, you know, my peer group, my age, you know, you're, you're becoming a CEO, you're, you're leading an organization. You always have to be a student as a leader. You always have to be willing to learn. You always have to be coachable. And when you stop being coachable, that's when you're going to start to see success ebb. And the folks I know, the managers who've led the best asset, the most successful folks I know, the Robert Smiths and the Ray McGuire's of the world, they're coachable. And I want to take a second to, you mentioned teachers and mentors before. I think my mom, my late mom's probably my, not just my biggest advocate, but probably like the best coach, mentor, along with being a parent and then being blessed to be in environments where you get to see a Ray McGuire in action. Mm. And you have to be that student in that moment and learn and observe and say, okay, this is how this brother's doing it. And, and the same with Robert Smith sitting in an investment committee meeting and watching him, you know, conduct business and, you know, learning and observing. Again, folks like Frank Baker, like, and everyone's got a different style, you know, the Jose Felicianos of the world, like, but, but you observe and listen and learn and you use the sort of an aggregate model of their experiences and you apply what works best for you. I love that. I talk to uh, NFL players about that very point of being your true and authentic self. Being able to humble yourself doesn't mean that you lose confidence in yourself. All the things that you've talked about today, being able to read the room and understand, sometimes you have to adapt. And then also know sometimes you got to walk out because it may not be the right fit. But ultimately, in time, if you're committed to crossing that river with that rope, maybe you'll have enough strength to throw it back to bring somebody else across. And I think that's what you've been able to do throughout your tenure and your career. So I appreciate all the words of advice and I hope everybody sort of heeds your, your knowledge and they too continue to grow and be a student. So one of the things we always like to do at the end of the podcast is, uh, you know, learn about your, your meals and deals. It's, it's our, it's my favorite segment. And anybody that likes to go to good restaurants, you know, it's also a great place to provide a, a recommendation. So tell us, a story of your favorite deal and maybe a celebratory meal, place that you like to go and really celebrate the wins, or maybe a place you like to go where you learn from a loss, but a place that is your meal and deal spot. So, you know, I spend a lot of time going back and forth between New York and, and DC. We have a Milken Institute, we have a DC office where we're close to the policymakers and most of my career has been in New York. If I could think of that one go-to place, it's gonna sound 
<laughs> fake houses have gone in and out of vogue. You know, people are trying to eat healthier, and but at the same time, there's culture and an ambiance to the steakhouse experience. Hmm. So the last celebratory experience, I, I went with a friend of mine and some of his peers, and he had closed a deal. And for old time's sake, we went to uh, Smith and uh, Walensky's on um, on Third Avenue in, mm -hmm. in New York City, because the no level of service that you can get, except from those guys in the pressed waiter uniforms, and they're hanging on your every need, you know, pick up the steak knife, they're there, you're like, you need another one, are you good? Like, you know, just the, <laughs> there's just a high degree of service that I think that a lot of newer restaurants, they could, they could probably learn from. And it's, and it's Manhattan culture. So, mm. you know, we're there, the deal was this person had raised, they, they were closing their, their fund. So, you know, when you do fund closing, when you hit your target, it's just for folks who are out there pounding the pavement, trying to raise capital, you hit your AUM goal, you know, did you, yeah, you definitely want to and deserve to celebrate. So that's mm -hmm. the last experience that I can think of. I can't overshare. It's like, why are you on there telling Donny all about my deal? It's like, listen, it's an opportunity to celebrate. If you haven't had that experience, the diet changes over the years. So I actually had the bronzino instead of the ribeye. <laughs> and I was shocked at myself. I said, wow, I really am getting old. Because <laughs> usually, you know, it's like a quarter house for two. Or, you know, I actually had the bronzino and truly enjoyed it and truly enjoyed that celebration uh, that was well-deserved. Well, thank you, Blair. And a well-deserved success that you have shall it continue, may it continue. And I look forward to following you in that experience because, you know, the, the trust and the trusts that you spend time uh, cultivating and being in the middle of, I've seen it firsthand, the, the champion that you are to so many asset managers and the support that you've been able to provide. And so as I listen to you, I just celebrate you and hopefully one day, We'll be able to sit down at Smith and Walensky's and, you know, you can have the Branzino all you oh. want. Oh, we will. And, you know, if you're up for it. I'm having my steak. Yeah, I was going to say, we could do the porterhouse for two. <laughs> like, I, if 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 we're going back, you know, that was that time. If we're going back, you know. I, it's going to be know, different. We, it's going to be a little different. And, again, honey, I appreciate the opportunity. It's not me as much. It's a legacy chain. You know, there are a lot of folks pre-me. You know, you've got the John Rogers of the world. You've got the Eddie Browns of Brown Capital. You know, those are the folks that created a pathway for us. And it's up to us to not break that mm. legacy chain and to help forge that for the next generation of folks like yourself and others. So, you know, thank you again. Appreciate it. Time to chop it up. Thank you, Blair. A big thanks again to Blair C. Smith for being with us today. 
It was an absolute pleasure to hear about the path to inclusive capitalism and the great work he's doing in the DEI investment space. If you're enjoying the Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been the Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. 